Hello, right-minded listeners. I just want to thank the Miami Book Fair for all of the fantastic authors they have uh, rounded up for us to to talk with on right-minded. Sarah Manguzo, Steve Allman, David Yoon, Angie Cruz, and Jochito Gonzalez are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami for the Miami Book Fair 2022, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They are all gathering on right-minded as well. Thanks to the folks at the Miami Book Fair. And, and you know, they, along with Patty Smith, Chef Ken Corbin, Zibby Owens, Moshe Safdie, Ross Gay, Stacey Schiff are, are, are looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everybody in person, but also in recorded conversations, which are streamed live from the fair from Sunday, November 13th through Sunday, November 20th. So be sure to listen in. Uh, for more information, go to Miami Book Fair or follow MBF at at Miami Book Fair, hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. I bet you could just Google Miami Book Fair and find out all of this information. So tune in and a big thanks to the Miami Book Fair. Hello, writers. I'm Grant Faulkner, Executive Director of National Novel Writing Month by Day, Struggling Writer by Night, and I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner, who is writing a memoir after penning several nonfiction books, and she's also written opinion pieces, and she's a publisher and a writing coach and a teacher and a podcaster, of course, and more, I know. And Brooke, I'm listing all these things you do because both of us are a little like our guest today, Steve Almond, in that we're not just writers. Steve has been celebrated for his short fiction, but he's also written several nonfiction books. He hosted a super popular podcast, Dear Sugars, with Cheryl Strayed, and he's a noted teacher and self-publisher, among other things. And this is just to say that all of our writing goes in many different directions and takes many different forms, ones that I certainly didn't see coming my way when I first started writing. I know this is true for you too, Brooke. It is. Yeah. And it's, oh my gosh, almost impossible to know where your path is going to lead you, though it certainly depends on the things you say yes to. And like I'm, for instance, betting you couldn't have imagined working on a TV show about writing coming your way. I definitely didn't imagine I'd ever have anything to do with a reality TV show. And I honestly didn't think I'd ever work at an org like National Novel Writing Month when I first started out. I didn't know organizations like this existed. And I guess they didn't back then. Uh, but I did think I'd publish many novels. And I have to confess that of all of the things on my writing resume, it's odd and sometimes troubling that I haven't managed to publish a novel. And I, I mentioned this because Steve was in the same position, uh, deeply attached to the novel as a form yet not able to publish one despite all of his other successes. So I'm eager to talk with Steve to hear about uh, his novel writing journey. I'm especially interested because I know how deeply attached he was to writing a novel. And I'm curious if he felt, as I do, as if it's a conspicuous hole in his resume. I certainly feel odd because I'm often asked directly about why I haven't published a novel as the head of an organization that is all about novel writing. Um, I do want to remind people that we're not National Novel Publishing Month, <laughs> that we're about the creative benefits of writing a novel and we don't you know, do so much on the publishing side. But still, it's a very natural question for me to field and to ask myself. Uh, so I'm wondering if you feel similarly about a memoir, Brooke, as if a memoir, you know, is a missing piece for you. Yeah, you know, it's funny that we have this parallel. Uh, and my answer as to whether it's a whole or not is kind of a yes and a no. In my case, I've always known I would publish a memoir, and it was just a matter of time. You know, many Young people publish memoirs, of course, but I have always felt like I wasn't ready, that I was too close to my story. Uh, you know, and for a long time, I felt this way. And 
and I've said that, you know, lots of times when people have asked me, because like you, they, people have asked you if you've written a novel, many people have asked me, you know, why haven't I written my own memoir? Uh, and that's the thing that has shifted. You know, I'm finally declaring that I'm ready, uh, but it took me a long time to arrive to this place. And there are lots of factors involved, distance, age, maturity, I think coming to some sort of peace about my relationships with the people who are going to be in the book and who might have feelings about me publishing this. And so I really get why so many people wait till middle age or need till middle age or later to write their memoirs. Uh, and then of course I have the luxury of not having to worry about where I'm going to get published. <laughs> you know, you have pursued the traditional route and that's a totally different animal and you've successfully published in other genres, you know, but that said, it's super important to acknowledge these aspirations not met and how and why it matters and what not having published in our own genres of expertise means to us, you know, so I'd like to pose that question back to you, Grant, how much does it really matter that you haven't published a novel, especially when you've written so many other genres and had lots of publishing success? Yeah, in the creative sense, it actually doesn't matter at all. I, I love all the novels I've worked on. And some of them, particularly those I wrote during NaNoWriMo were meant to be fun forays and explorations. And I never thought of them as work meant to be published. And I always like to remind people that just as people get together to play music together and sing together or knit together, they also get together to write. And there's an intrinsic benefit in doing art for art's sake. But I did work very hard on three novels and I tried really hard to get them published. And as you said, through the traditional means of uh, agent, big publisher type of thing. And, and each of them almost, almost, almost made it. You know, they were very close. Um, but they weren't novels that were especially commercial. And, you know, each of them had merits. But but in large part, I, I think the reason they didn't get published resides with me. Um, as I said, I tried to publish them only through traditional routes of finding an agent and pitching them to big publishing houses. And they were all really small press books in the end. And I really should have explored that more. And I think that's where my ego attachment was preventing me from going that down that route. And the first one I wrote uh, was when I was getting my MFA, when I was a young writer and was all ready to be a debut novelist. And what makes me sad about that novel was that it came very close. Um, an editor at a big publishing house who published many of my favorite writers wrote me a long letter about all the reasons he liked it <laughs> and also a few reasons why I couldn't publish it. Hmm. But I was just too young then to know that I needed to ask people for help. I needed to get some serious feedback and I needed to put the novel through at least a couple more revisions. And, uh, you know, so, so I just remember getting a letter like that and kind of being like, oh, okay, well, that's it. It's just not good enough. I mean, I, I think I did revise it a bit and try to send it out, but I kind of also rather just kind of casually dropped it at, at the very moment when I actually needed to dig in deeper. So that was a lesson. And and I want to note that, that that what I've heard Steve say in the past is that that all of these novel attempts, as consuming as they can be, aren't wastes of time. They are lessons. They do somehow build writing knowledge and novel writing knowledge in particular, and they also build publishing knowledge. And and now that I've experienced small presses, I'm likely going to try to publish my current novel with a small press. So this is all to say that I've that I've worked out a lot of my ego issues attached to writing and publishing a novel. I can't say I've worked them all out because I've got as weak of an ego as anyone. <laughs> And sometimes it flares up, uh, but writing takes so many shapes. And I think that's what I want listeners to know that writing, you know, the, all the writing prizes or goals that you might be clinging to, maybe they don't matter as much as you think they do. So be open to other forms and other possibilities and, and also know that your next writing project might be the one that speaks to you more strongly and might be the one that actually makes it. So going back to this notion of this, this ego, Brooke, I'm just curious, is your ego at all tied up in writing a memoir in any way? 
Yeah. I mean, thanks for sharing so honestly about your own stuff. Um, I, I think it's a really good question to ask yourself personally at any time. And I'd love for you to ask me again in another year, because I imagine the answer is yes. And that I can't even know all the ways in which this is true just yet. Uh, you know, I haven't felt deficient about not having written a memoir because I've all, like I said, I've always felt young, like I was still living my story, but for the first time ever, that's different. You know, I'm officially in my late forties. I've lived a bit. I have some distance. Um, but writing a, the memoir has been this thing, uh, that, like, yeah, I mean, I, I know my ego will be tied up with it, you know, once I'm like truly underway and really thinking about pushing it out into the world, because I'm still in the honeymoon phase. Um, I want it to be good. You know, I want it to be better than good. I want it to be well received. And, you know, I have a lot at stake, too, because I teach the genre. So the effort can't be mediocre. You know, it will matter to me very much that this be the best book I've ever written. You know, so in that way, I mean, it's always the case, like our reputations are on the line, right? And our egos are invested in all of that. Uh, and I think that to some extent really should be true of all writers. I mean, you, you mentioned a weak ego. Um, I think we need to like cultivate healthy egos. Um, and, and that's what I'll be working on, <laughs> I guess, alongside <laughs> my memoir. Nothing like writing a memoir or a novel to to put in a lot of practice to cultivate the healthy ego. <laughs> Um, so I completely agree with you. Uh, writing a novel or a memoir just takes such a long time and such a lot of hard work. And you're, you're going to face a lot of dark moments and obstacles just by definition. And I, I think the strength and the healthiness of your ego attachment sometimes is what gets you through those moments and gives you strength. So I believe in a healthy ego. And, and Steve talks a bit about how a novel can collapse if it's driven solely by the ego. So the thing is to make sure that your ego is working in service of the story. So I look forward to hearing more about Steve's take on this subject after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Steve Almond because he's an author I've encountered in so many different and interesting ways. I became acquainted with him initially through his short fiction, which has received a lot of acclaim. But he's got an eclectic resume. Uh, I also know him because he co-hosted the popular podcast Dear Sugars with Cheryl Strayed. He wrote an arresting book that's a manifesto of a type uh, against football, which should make even the most diehard football fan turn off the TV. Uh, he wrote a book about a little-known author named William Stoner called William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life, which is about reading and writing and the struggle to pay attention to our lives, something I think most of us experience. And now, after all these years, he's written his first novel, All the Secrets of the World. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Steve, you've written so broadly and in so many different forms that if someone had asked me if you'd published a novel a year ago, I would have just said yes. <laughs> but that would have been wouldn't have been right because you've you've struggled with the novel form as have I by the way. Mm -hmm. um, so I was wondering if you could could tell us about your relationship with the novel and your journey to bringing one to publication. Yeah, yikes! 
like it's always been the the thing that I couldn't do. Most of my career, I consider like I consider myself a very high functioning failed novelist because all those books that you mentioned, Candy Freak or Against Football, the the short story collections were almost invariably written after having failed at some wretched novel. And I think the struggle for me was that I really didn't understand this, the concept of a plot as it applies to a novel, a big, the architecture of a plot in novels is so complicated. You have a, a cast of characters who have these intersecting trajectories that send them in different directions. And it all just felt like too much for me to handle. So I continually failed at them and then beat myself up for years and years. And it became a real ego drama. Grant, I don't know if you had this experience, but like a friend of mine said to me some years ago, like, I don't think you really want to write a novel. I think you want to be a novelist. Like, I don't think you actually are interested in the story. You just want the ego drama of having met this creative challenge. And I was like, how dare you say that? very true thing to me. Um, <laughs> you know, like, like we always feel when somebody has our number, we're like, Oh, God, darn it, you got me. And it's true, the subtext of almost all these failed novels, there really wasn't a subtext. But if there was one, it was like, aren't I clever? Aren't I sensitive? Don't you think I'm a good person? And that's not really interesting. The ego drama is much less interesting than the story that you came to the page to tell. It took me basically giving up and saying, all right, I hit my 50s. I never wrote a novel. It's fine. Nobody really cares other than me. And I can live with that. I'll write other things that are important and meaningful. And then weirdly, having given up, there was like this creative space that opened up. And into that space, the muse walked this young woman, Lorena Sines, who was so brilliant and courageous and intelligent and so full of kind of roiling hormones and ambitions, but was also, an, you know, her family was undocumented. She was very vulnerable in the world. And this central conflict, whether she's going to become visible or not, and when she does become visible, how exciting that is for her, but also how much that puts her and her family in danger, just became this like roaring engine that drove me through the story so that I didn't feel... I was pushing characters around and all the failed novels. It felt like I was pushing characters, hoping they would bump into plot. In this story, I felt like I was just chasing Lorena as she got into more and more trouble and then tried to figure out how to get out of that trouble. And it was such a feeling of, of the, of the story giving you energy rather than you being sort of push, pouring your energy into this bottomless story that isn't headed anywhere so that was very gratifying to finally feel like, oh, yes, this is how it's supposed to feel. Hmm. Well, Steve, I can't thank you enough for just speaking so eloquently and truly about ego, because a lot of people are uncomfortable with all of the stuff that that entails. And, you know, one of the things that hinders writers is the ideas they cling to about what they're supposed to write or how they're supposed to be a writer. Yes. And, and so you're talking about ego being at stake and how that ego can lead you to good places, but sometimes it can lead you astray. And then you wrote, um, Grant and I picked this up somewhere where you said, I wrote the novels partly because I wanted to prove I could be a novelist. It was an ego thing. And like most ego things, it collapsed pretty quickly under the weight of its own anxiety. Yes. So can you speak to that a little bit more? Why writing is an ego thing and, you know, just this collapsing and, and also does the ego have a role in having a successful novel? Well, I think you have to become more interested in the story you're trying to tell than in how you're telling it. 
And I think there's a big difference between the two. I think so much, almost every bad decision that I've made as a writer has been the result of insecurity, whether it's repeating information that the reader already knows or leaping into a scene without really establishing what the stakes are, the dramatic context, uh, or trying to flog the language because I don't really know where the next plot beat is going. All of those are really about an anxiety that sounds something like, do you think I'm intelligent? Do you think I'm sensitive? Am I a worthy person? Will you love me? And those feelings are completely reasonable and inevitable. But when you're writing, especially something as big and complicated as a novel, you need to give it all to the characters and the story. You need to be way more interested in what's going to happen to them than how it reflects on you. And that's the only way I can say it, that when you are writing out of ego and an ego need, the reader immediately picks up on it because the story isn't going, it doesn't belong to the characters. It belongs to the author's anxiety. And you can just tell, like I'm a teacher of writing and I can tell when somebody's insecurity is getting the better of their story. I think that's so interesting, Steve, in the way that you described earlier about how your your past novels, the failed novels, were about you hoping that your characters would kind of bump into plot right. <laughs> and that uh, Lorena was leading the plot and that you were having to chase her. And I, I read an interview where you, you referred to to all the secrets of the world's its beginning um, as a political thriller, but that once you started exploring different points of view, and, and those one of those points of view is Nancy Reagan as well, as a contrast to <laughs> Lorena. Alert, yeah. yeah. And Lorena is a first-generation Honduran-American teenager, that once you were going back and forth between these points of view, it became more of a social novel about how the powerful and the powerless collide. So... I was wondering if you could tell us more just about why you chose to write this novel and then how it developed because of these shifting points of view. Well, one of the things I feel about a good novel is, look, it's audacious for me to write as a person of tremendous and mostly unearned privilege to be writing about people who are have much less cultural power than I do, like Lorena Sines or Pedro Guerrero, the detective who winds up uh, mixed up with Lorena. Um, the undocumented relatives that Lorena has, her mother, Graciela, her brother, Tony. These are people who have lived struggles that I can only try to imagine with empathy. And I could have gotten very hung up on that and worried about it. But I really felt when I started writing that what I was trying to do was follow a chain of consequence. And when that chain of consequence leads to a new character, whether it's a police investigator or a prosecutor or a, a wealthy matron, you know, um, like um, Rosemary Stallworth, or whether it's Nancy Reagan, my job in every instance is never to flatten the character out, is to try to understand what their motives are and how they came by those motives. I really feel like the best novels have this feeling to them that the author is really like, we're the fools in charge of forgiveness. It is our job to try to understand and forgive or at least understand everybody's motives. And to also recognize that people are born into different stories. That's what a social novel is trying to articulate, that somebody like Lorena, if she makes one false step, is going to be potentially, unless she can find a way to battle against it, is going to be crushed under the boot heel of the powerful who have an agenda. And that sounds very dogmatic and kind of up on a soapbox, but the, the beauty of a really great um, social novel like Mega Majumdar's A Burning or uh, any of Steinbeck's work or a lot of Dickens' work, the beauty of it is that we don't feel like somebody's moralizing at us. 
we feel like the story of the characters colliding, whether they have power or not, is leading us deeper into our own moral confusions. And that's ultimately what I wanted to do. Lorena is like my hero, but she's also somebody who really screws up. She screws up for understandable reasons, but she's still complicit in certain ways in the trouble that that, um, she invites into her life. And my job, especially with somebody like Nancy Reagan, is to not fall into this pattern of thought that's so prevalent in America right now, where I just write her off as this like modern Marie Antoinette, this like ditz who's obsessed with astrology and who's totally superficial and cares about China patterns more than, you know, traumatized refugees coming to this country. Like that pattern of thinking is inherently inimical to the kind of work that great novels are doing, which make us feel for all of the characters, which make us feel that everybody does the things they do for reasons that that having to do with their fear and their vulnerability and the places that they're in pain. Well, gosh, Steve, I don't know how much you knew about Nancy Reagan before you started the story or all these other things that are uh, populate the novel. I mean, scorpions, astronomy, police work, the Mojave Desert. Yeah. Uh, you know, the novel clearly required more than a little research and research, as we all know, can be a dangerous thing. And you said in another interview, I've had the tendency to get obsessed with research as a way of avoiding my confusions about the story I was telling. So with this novel in particular, how did research serve the story or, you know, did it continue? to be a challenge? Well, I put a lot of research. Like, So what people do, I think you're, you're right that oftentimes because it's frightening to put characters into dangerous situations emotionally, physically, you know, romantically, uh, we have a tendency, I had a tendency to kind of research some interesting era or some interesting historical figure like Nancy Reagan and get kind of caught up in that um, and just pack all of that into the novel. Like, this will be interesting. Again, it's that ego need thing. And what I realized was I could actually just do enough research that the things that were really evocative to me, those were really all I needed. So with Scorpions, for instance, I, when I was a you know young reporter living in El Paso, Texas on the border, I was taken out into the desert by a couple of zoologists who turned on an ultraviolet light and the, the ground around me, which I considered just to be empty sand, was suddenly lit up with like a thousand little glow-in-the-dark, they looked like little glow-in-the-dark toys like you get in a cereal box. And then they started to move. And I was like, oh, my God, it's scorpions. And there was this invisible world that was suddenly revealed. And when I saw that, I think it, it stayed in my mind. I think that's where novels come from. There's all these hauntings in the author's past, all these experiences that are sticking around in our subconscious. And the force of the story, like a rocket taking off, kind of pulls those things out of our subconscious. So for me, when I looked at Scorpions, I knew that that scene was going to be in the novel. And then when I started to research Scorpions, I realized, here's this creature that we think of as totally primitive and alien, but they're actually, they have little hairs along their body And they feel through the world, they hunt by vibration. They can sense the movement of a single grain of sand 10 yards away. In other words, they're exquisitely sensitive. And when I thought, when I read that about scorpions, I was like, oh my God, that is exactly what it's like to sit at my kitchen table with my family. I am that sensitive to their movements. They can have a single gesture or like a turn of their mouth. And I can immediately like react to it in this huge way, like I'm under attack or they're disappointed in me. 
Scorpions are exactly like human beings. We all think that we're the victim and that we're being hunted, but we're actually really destructive and predatory in ways that we can't often see. And all these things, like when I did the research, I really tried to distill it down just to what was serving the characters and the story. The same thing was true of Nancy Reagan, because I had flattened her out into that sort of political cartoon. But when I researched her life, I realized, oh, my God, she totally adored her husband. And then she sees her husband in the first few months of his presidency almost get killed. There's a bullet lodged a quarter of an inch from his heart, and she's traumatized by it. And so she adopts all of these crazy systems of thought, the astrology and all the rest of it, to try to keep her husband safe, to try to keep her beloved alive. And I was like, I understand that. I would do the exact same thing as Nancy Reagan. That's going to be our, our pull quote to tease this episode, Steve. <laughs> I would do the exact same thing as Nancy Reagan. Steve Allman, 2022. Yeah, just so you know. Um no, on that note, actually, I, w- I want to shift topics a bit because of the ways you've put yourself out there on public stands and literally put your living on the line. You, you, you quit your job as a professor at Boston College in 2006 to protest the selection of Condoleezza Rice as the college's commencement guest speaker. And you wrote a book that I mentioned uh, taking on uh, the NFL because of the ways it endangers players, you know, just name a couple of the things you've done. And you've actually garnered enough hate that you published a book called Letters from People Who Hate Me. Yes. So I, I guess I'm curious um, in terms of the the creative space that being an outspoken person creates, you know, because so often writers really want to kind of keep their lives conflict free to protect their creative space, but you've actually taken on controversial subjects. And I'm just curious how that has influenced you as a creator. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to dance with your trolls, really. When we get into conflict, You know, in our civilian lives, we're constantly trying to avoid conflict. I think we spend like 67% of our mental energy avoiding conflict. But I don't think that actually makes inner conflict go away. I think it sort of spring loads it with the force of our suppression. We are inherently confused. The poet Mark Strand says, we live in a stance of mystery, but we don't like it. I think as a species, we are often bewildered. And we're out of that bewilderment. We're angry and frustrated and feel misunderstood. And we try to put a happy Facebook face on it. We kind of market our charm and our poise and how well things are going and tuck under the pillow of our privacy the kind of inner anguish we feel. And I think that's actually part of what writers are supposed to be doing is unleashing that um, uncertainty and confusion and bewilderment and some of the primal negative emotions. So when people write me hate mail, my job isn't to say, oh, that person's a jerk. My job is to say, oh, that person seems to be in a lot of pain and they're putting that pain on me. And I recognize that pain because I too have ranted at whoever it is out of my own pain. And can we at least have an honest discussion about how hard it is to be a human being? And if we're going to do that, that means we have to include the parts of ourselves that are destructive and out of control and predatory and self-righteous and indignant. And underneath it all, we're vulnerable. You know, I think the job of a writer is to peel away the lesser defensive emotions. If somebody is expressing grievance, that means they're grieving. If somebody is expressing alienation, that means they're guarding some thwarted desire that they couldn't get. If they're, if they're expressing rage, that means that they're feeling sorrow underneath that rage. And it's the job of good art, not rhetoric, but good art, to try to get underneath that stuff. So if I'm writing about football, 
and I'm trying to say, here are all these moral corruptions in football, I can't exclude the part of the story that sounds like something more like, I need this sport. The part of me that still hasn't grown up, the part of me that's angry, the part of me that's a child, the part of me that's aggressive, the part of me that feels powerless and wants to align myself with people who look and, and act in a way that I see as powerful, like that part also is in the story, is driving the story. I can't, I, I just don't believe that you can, as an author, like your job is to lay yourself bare so that the reader doesn't feel alone with the, the kind of mess that they're in or how messy they sometimes feel. Well, Steve, I want to ask you a publishing question because you've shown independence in your publishing choices in addition to independence <laughs> in your opinions. That's a, really, that's a really polite way of saying, boy, you have a weird publishing record, Alma. <laughs> well, well, there you go. Let's take it that way. You do have a weird publishing record, but I love everything about it. I mean, you're one of the few authors I know who has a big author brand and you know big commercial success. People know who you are through your popular podcast, Dear Sugars, and yet you've self-published several books and you've been an outspoken advocate too. So tell us uh, more. Why do you advocate for indie publishing? Well, the way I would say it is, is like this. I mean, look, a traditional publishing is an arranged marriage between an artist and a very benign corporation. And, you know, that means that the most important question that an author can ask themselves is, what would feel like a success to me? And this is where I think ego comes into it. I self-published books because there were these weird little books that I wanted to make and I wanted to make them how I wanted to make them and I wanted to have, you know, respond to my hate mail and I wanted to work with an artist who I love to design the covers and the interior of those books and I wanted to like not sell them on Amazon or have an ISBN number. I just wanted to like carry them around in a little satchel like a drug dealer and like make little <laughs> drug deals at my readings. That was the version of publishing that felt right for those books. But I've also worked with big corporate publishers, and I've been very grateful for the help that they've given me and the, the, the audience that they've tried to reach. And I don't think I would have done the self-published books if it was my first book, because I needed to feel the imprimatur because of my ego. I needed to feel that New York like knew who I was a little bit and was willing to invest in one of my books. And I think what people have to figure out is what constitutes a successful relationship for you. The arranged marriage with a big corporation, for me, I don't think makes a lot of sense frequently because I haven't written a book that's going to get a big audience. It's going to have a small audience. I think there's like three different kinds of artists in the world. There are people like Dylan or Milton or Shakespeare or Toni Morrison, whoever, who are brilliant and they reach a big number of people in a very deep way. And I think there are people who write thrillers and pop songs who, whose art is beautiful and wonderful and it reaches a big audience, maybe not in as deep a way, but it reaches them and it provides great comfort and solace for them. And then there's the kind of artist that I think I am, which is I reach a very small number of people, but hopefully in a deeper way, because I'm trying to lay bare what I'm struggling with and, and, and see if that connects to what they're struggling with. And I'm okay with that. I don't have any illusions about trying to sort of become a, a big popular author. If it happened, it would be great, but I don't think it's going to happen and I feel good about being able to reach a smaller audience in a way that I hope reaches deeper into what they're living through. And that's kind of what you have to try to come to peace with, as well as recognizing that the muse really isn't inside of us. It's not something we can control. We can't force it out of our imagination at gunpoint. We can only show up at the keyboard and hope 
that our imagination walk, if we're forgiving enough of ourselves and patient enough and stubborn enough, that the muse will walk into our creative life, a character like Lorena Sines, where you become far more interested in chasing her and than you do in like, do you think I'm smart? Am I being eloquent? Will you buy my book? Like, I'm glad that all the secrets of the world is in the, you know, got published. I'm glad that Zando decided to publish it, this great new publisher. I really hope as many people as possible find it because I work my tush off on it. But the real accomplishment was just me getting more interested in that story and seeing Lorena into the danger and seeing her through it in a way that feels emotionally convincing. That was the accomplishment. The rest of it is stuff you can't control. That's the world making its decisions. You can only be responsible for the decisions you make at the keyboard. Well, Steve, in closing, I'm going to ask kind of a stupid question. Your your Amazon blurb says that you're a writer at the height of his powers. <laughs> and, and I know that wasn't written by you. It was not. But I'm just kind of curious if you feel that you're a writer at the height of your powers or what, what does that even mean? Yeah, I think that, that I would say I'm a writer at the height of my anxiety. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think that. Um, that's the kind of thing that, that people say in marketing speak to say, Hey, I think he's really hitting on something. And I hope that's the case. I think this novel is like, I believe feels to me like the biggest artistic success I've been able to have, uh, in terms of really deeply embedding with a set of characters and, and caring about them deeply and trying to understand what they're struggling with and, you know, orchestrating a big, complicated novel plot. I'm very proud of myself for having done that. But for the last few months, I have felt completely overwhelmed by what's happening in my family life and what's happening in the country and, you know, my teaching duties and whatever other anxieties have been chasing me around. I'm not at the height of my powers. I'm barely hanging on to my sanity. But that's okay. Like it's the job of the marketing people to make it sound like this guy is tremendous. You would be a fool not to read it. Like that's literally their job. And then people have to kind of encounter me in person and they're like, boy, you seem quite disappointing. You do not seem like a person at the height of your powers. Sorry, world. <laughs> well, Steve, thank you for joining us. And you actually do seem at the height of your powers here as a, as a guest. So thank you for joining us. <laughs> well, thanks for asking a bunch of cool questions. I, I'm always really happy to talk about this stuff. It's lonely. You guys are both writers, so you know it's really lonely. <laughs> well, my gosh, congratulations on finally getting the novel published, too. It's a, a big coup. Thank you. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Hey, everyone. This week's book trend is one that's very close to my heart. It's about indie small presses. And you know, Brooke, one of the unfortunate things I've noticed in the writing and publishing world is how some books get and authors get more esteemed if they're published by one of the big five publishers, as if the, you know, the big five publishers, as if that's the major leagues of publishing and all the rest of the publishers are somewhere in the minor leagues, you know, either in single A or double A or triple A teams, you know, according to their size. And it's a very American concept, really, that bigger is always better. But I always argue that some, if not most, of the most interesting writing is coming from the smaller indie presses. And that's because they're not as focused as publishing, you know, on publishing a commercial product as big publishers are. They're more focused on their missions of publishing interesting and necessary stories. And I saw a validation for that recently. Annie Ernaux won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and she's published by the London-based independent publisher Fitzcarraldo. 
Yeah, Arnaud not only won, but that's the second Nobel Prize the press has won in four years. Uh, Polish writer Olga uh, Tokarczyk won in 2019. Fitz uh, also now publishes two authors with the last names Janelle. You want to help me, Grant? Janelnik? <laughs> I, I would say Jelinek. Jelinek? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then Svetlana. Alexevich, how about Alexevich. that? Alexevich, thank you. Yes. Um, so we have four Nobel winning authors who are published by this press. And, and this is a press that's just got a team of six full-time employees who all do a bit of everything from an office in Southeast London that used to be a warehouse and a nightclub. So I agree strongly, you know, brilliant small publishers such as Fitzcarraldo Editions make enormous contributions to literary culture because they give voice to authors who would otherwise go unheard. And they take risks in their commissioning uh, that big publishers just won't do. Yeah, I Google a, a list of small publishers who have won or regularly win awards, and it was fascinating to read how many are like Fitzcarraldo, uh, you know, really small staffs with small budgets who, who publish amazing work. And I'm just going to read some of them because I hope that listeners, I don't know, recognize these imprints and actually buy books because these small press publish authors and kind of validate them. So there's Coach House Books, Counterpoint Press, which is here in the Bay Area, Coffee House Press, Seven Stories Press, Persia Books, Tupelo Press, Grey Wolf Press, which is, is so well known and so fantastic, Four Way Books, Copper Canyon Press, Bellevue Literary Press, Akashic Books, and $2 Radio. And that's just, you know, a handful of fantastic small presses that regularly win awards. And and I was recently thinking actually about my own upcoming book, The Art of Brevity, and how fortunate I am that it's being published by University Press and not a big five. Um, many writers, after having published a book with Big House, actually prefer to publish with independent publishers just because you get more individualized attention and you don't get lost in a huge cog of a corporate machine. And I'm pretty sure my book would have been treated like a cog or a widget, which would have just ruined it for me and, and for the reader, I think. Yeah. I mean, there can be such a level of depersonalization there. So I'm seconding that notion of you having been fortunate to land with presses that have taken care of you in these ways. And small presses, as you said, you know, they just can take bigger risks. And often we see the payoff of those risks when indie presses get the kind of wins that we're talking about here, you know, in the form of awards. And also people share how much they love these books. So these recommendations can be shared word of mouth. Uh, and lots of readers, of course, are unconscious of which presses are published the books that they read. So just want to put a word out there, pay attention, intentionally support indie presses. They need it <laughs> and they need the readers in order to keep taking those kinds of risks. And so Grant, uh, I also want to say congratulations because this is the first week of National Novel Writing Month and I've started officially. <laughs> I want to say thank you for providing this space where all of us are pushing ourselves to write every single day and it's super exciting. So whether you've written a lot or a little so far, just know that every single day is a new day <laughs> right that's the motto yeah good good motto yeah, yeah keep writing everyone keep writing keep writing we'll see you next week 